Hello and welcome to episode three of Humanism Now, the, the podcast brought to you by the Central London Humanists. I'm your host, James, and this week we'll be discussing humanist uh, reflections on the UK's current asylum policy. Should humanists consider animal rights as part of their belief system? And can a humanist have religious faith? All of this, plus our interview with Jamie Woodhouse of Sentientism. And to discuss all of this, I'll be joined by my regular co-hosts, AJ. Hi, James. Glad to be with you. And returning once again, Audrey Simmons of the Association of Black Humanists. How are you, Audrey? Hi, James. Hi, AJ. Nice to be back. Good to see you both. We're struggling for topics in the build-up to today's podcast, and then we recently saw the news of a change in the UK's approach to asylum for those seeking uh, uh, to stay in the UK uh, based on discrimination for being uh, from the LGBT plus community. AJ, uh, this is something which is uh, very closely tied to our work. And I wondered if you'd like to maybe share some of your thoughts and reflections from the past few days. Absolutely. Yes, both as a local group and also nationally and internationally as well. The cause of not just apostate refugees, but refugees generally, i.e. not just refugees who have some kind of a humanist conversion uh, that will then bring them quite close to home for us, but just people who are suffering all kinds of persecution and violence and threats to their way of living. Uh, that naturally does fall under a, a humanist concern. Now, it's quite interesting that you said that this might it would be relate relate to a change in the UK government's policy. Well, something needs to be said about that, I think. So we've had a speech from the UK Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, uh, in the US uh, to a think tank, which uh, has to be taken into account. I mean, is this, in some sense, a political manoeuvre or some kind of grandstanding where uh, she, being uh, right-wing herself, is appealing to certain potential uh, future partners that she, that, she, that she may be willing to work with or wishing to work with in the US? Or is this actually a political uh, commitment or some kind of policy direction change? Or maybe it could be both. So we have to take what's, uh, what's said with a pinch of salt, but not focusing on the person, but on the arguments presented generally, because we do unfortunately hear some of the arguments that she used in that speech. I mean, the main four points uh, that she brought up asking for us to rethink the way that we approach asylum seekers and uh, hold and take on refugees. The idea of a national identity crisis or the culture changing too fast was one of them. Uh, the administration of sourcing through asylum seekers and integrating and installing refugees in various parts of the country, just logistically, we can't keep up as a second reason. She said we should sort of rethink it and reduce and question um, who we give uh, asylum and refugee status to. The third one was that somehow they'll pose a national security threat, uh, that somehow mercenaries and potential terrorists and criminals are coming over. Uh, and finally, that the uh, influx of migrants could pose a democratic threat or that uh, there could be a political crisis in how these people are engaging or not uh, with the political system. Now, there's a lot that can be said about each of those, and we've got limited time today. But I think uh, essentially we have to we have to look at what is the proportion of people that she is actually talking about because her speech was quite light on facts. She specifically looked at a potential what she calls as a, maybe a weakness in the cases made by LGBT plus uh, asylum seekers as compared to say the cases made by others who are 
it may be more worthy in her eyes. Now, this immediately is uh, is just quite a callous way to treat human beings. There is a, a way to triage and sort them, but we're not doing that very well as a country. From the, the past evidence, there's been a massive backlog. Only around, I think, 2% of asylum claimants last year actually made a claim based on sexual orientation. Now, and that's with a very well-founded fear from their running from uh, countries and societies such as Pakistan or Nigeria, where you can be killed. Uh, and homophobia is, is basically enshrined in the law there. So that's a well-founded fear. But all of this hullabaloo over 2% of the asylum claimant, that's again, we have to think of why this argument is being made right now and what possible distractions uh, are lie behind it and what kind of political considerations in terms of what audience uh, these arguments are are intended for. So I think that's the first thing to say about them. I feel um, you posed a question about why now, you know, she's in America, what does that mean? And I do think it's about her trying to make a, a position that um, she's actually doing something when actually what she's actually doing is is, is nothing. Um, she's the Home Secretary, she has been for a while and still, as you were saying, the backlog. And that's the biggest issue that we have. And what people on the ground, ordinary people are seeing is that people are being placed in hotels, being placed in situations, difficult situations that of nobody else is making except the Home Secretary and her and her team. And so when we hear these conversations that she's taken to America, she's basically gaslighting us and she's basically making us feel somehow that the refugees that are coming over here and the asylum seekers that are coming over here, they are bad people. And she's using the, these all of these terms because she's saying that, you know, these reasons that, you know, being a woman is not a reason for um for seeking asylum. Who ever said that that was? There's never been a question that because you're a woman, you can seek asylum. But there has been a question of how women activists um, who, you know, who stand up in, in countries where being a woman is not something, being a woman activist isn't something that's actually allowed, that is endangering to life. So when you use these general phrases, when you say LGBT, what exactly is this you're saying? You're gaslighting, you're saying that there's an influx of people that are using these laws that are actually, which actually isn't true. As you pointed out, only 2% of all the people that are, that are, are seeking asylum. And I also think we just need to remember that people who are coming here are using the dinghies because this government has closed down every other route. And it's a bit like saying, you can come into my home, but I've closed the back door, I've closed the front door, and you know the only way you can come in is if you break a window and, and then charge you as um, you know, a, a burglar if you try to come in. And this is what this government has done. So this whole asylum um, question is not about who has the right to come in, who should be triaged, how, you know, how do we make those decisions? Because I think everybody would have that conversation about who can come in, under what laws, under what circumstances. What This deals with none of that. And it's really just straw man arguments about their inadequacies, the, the money that they have taken out of public services that make everything 
not just the asylum seeker, but everything else that around it, housing, medical care, everything that are linked to that makes it all fall apart. So she's going to America. She didn't do it in Britain mm. because she doesn't have that support. She's had to go to America, which is in this sort of right wing sort of mire at the moment to seek support. And so I think it's important that we give it context so that we that everyone understands where this is coming from. And this is about this isn't about human human beings suffering and make and even if they are economic migrants so what what is it that we do with economic migrants how do we treat them how do we house them what do we say she has said nothing about that so i get pretty mad when i hear this kind of rhetoric and she's been challenged because obviously she, her parents came over here and many people's parents come over here not because they were being persecuted but they came for better lives and there's nothing wrong with that nothing wrong with it at all but she's actually treating it as if somehow what she did is something different from what other people are doing. And I think that's, again, a conversation that needs to be had. Um, we need to take responsibility for our actions and our words. And she isn't doing any of that. She's causing a lot of upset. Oh, sorry, a lot was said there. I get quite passionate. No need to apologise, Audrey. This is a, a, a topic that I think many of us are passionate about. Um, Edgy, how do you see this linking to humanist principles and the campaigns that we're involved in? Yeah, well, a fundamental humanist principle, apart from using evidence-based reasoning, as we've just shown there, which was not really done in the Home Secretary speech, is this idea of empathy and is also uh, considering uh, our friends in Humanist Climate Action, which is another section of Humanist UK, looking ahead to the decades that are going to be ravaged in the future by climate change. This is going to be, especially with water scarcity and droughts in Asia, this is going to be a massive problem going forward. So we should be thankful that the Refugee Convention has, has in its wording, has as the Home Secretary said, well, she said it was a, was a point of concern that maybe in the past only a few million people worldwide would have been covered by it. Now hundreds of millions of people have been covered by it. Well, that's good because like it or not, they're going to come in some ways because their societies are collapsing either through war and conflict, which you know we're not completely innocent of uh, having a hand in, or uh, in other cases, drought and other climate change related disasters so we're going to have to deal with this at some point we can't just stick our heads in the sand and expect for that to go away so that certainly isn't a humanist value and having empathy with people who are suffering that certainly is not also a, a, a humanist value so we it's it's i think it behooves humanists to to be very very uh, pointed on this as for the, the idea that uh, and again uh, an idea of a golden rule and can't categorical imperative. What if we all had the same approach that was outlined in the secretary's speech? Well, if every neighboring country or neighboring safe country had a beggar thy neighbor policy where every every country just said, well, we can't accept you because the country next to us is a safe country and the refugees have come through there first, then refugees wouldn't spread anywhere. Actually, what the Refugee Convention does is, is realizes the universality of, of, of mankind, of humans generally as a species, and says that the, the world is our home and we can mix and form multicultural relationships wherever we go. And especially people in need, but as also as already pointed out, economic migrants, um, both uh, groups are entitled to seek refuge in any country that they wish. And yes, many come to the UK because of our colonial past ties, which are now coming to bite us in the in the backside. 
and uh, are the English language, again, spread mostly through colonialism. So because of that, people come here. We should be thankful for that. And a good uh, government and a good society should be able to welcome these eager uh, hands to work and to contribute to our society and uh, make use of them, because we certainly need that in our aging society that's unable to fulfill the challenges of the future. So rather than living up to that, it, it's a bit rich to then, instead of administration of the state properly, to point to the Refugee Convention and as if that's the problem without any consideration of, again, the fact that it's such a minority of the people that she's talking about. There has to be an element of dog whistle uh, politics in this, I think, mm. uh, which we have to be very careful of not to get drawn into too much of the attention seeking that maybe she wants, but to give the attention to the bad faith arguments that are being put out there by many. I mean, I work with a local refugee group and we still see this even in West London where I live, in local meetings, in local media, these same tropes and arguments are being trotted out. So it's very, very important for us to be prepared and to be able to answer these soberly, rationally, and with empathy, not just for the refugees, but also for the people who make them, because sometimes they're drawn into a web of anti-immigrant feeling, and they don't really know why. And actually, under, under this government recently, we've had millions of legal migrants, and, and they may be feeling the pressure, the quote-unquote native population here may be feeling that pressure, but the, the government can't really speak against legal migrants. So they use illegal migrants as a scapegoat for the unsolved problems posed by the burden of not properly receiving the legal migrants, i.e. high-speed rail and transport and housing infrastructure. When that's not being met, the easy scapegoat to point out would be to say, vote for us, we'll carry on being in power, and we'll stop the boat, even though in an arithmetical consideration, they're just such a tiny number contributing to whatever burden the public is supposedly feeling by these influx of migrants. So it doesn't make sense on multiple levels. I sorry, I just wanted to come back. I think there is another thing that I suppose as the Association of Black Humanists, I really need to bring up. We're talking about multiculturalism and she said it's failed. And I think what's failed as well, us as a society to tackle racism in any positive and real and meaningful way. And so when we see those boats um, coming over, what we what is the dog whistle that go out this is black and brown people coming over to take from us and and we don't really deal with that we just get frightened or we get we, we don't really tackle any of the arguments or conversations that need to be had about that and people coming into this country who have different cultures or whatever we don't look at that head on and say yes people are coming over here with different cultures how do we deal with that how do we actually set the the table out so that there is a clear understanding of, of what that exchange is and it is an exchange it's an exchange of ideas an exchange of cultures an exchange of all kinds of things and we don't have that conversation and I think multiculturalism hasn't multiculturalism hasn't failed. What we failed to do is really look at what that means and how do we support people to integrate when we have, um, you know, colleges that used to be able to put on um, in ESOL courses they've all been cut. All of the kind of local things that would would have supported people coming over to the country new who don't know how. Britain works and the most basic level, all of that funding has been cut. And we seem to do this, this, this thing of we welcome people, but we don't actually work out how to integrate, how to support. We kind of go, you're here and that's it. So multiculturalism has not failed. What has failed is we have failed to tackle the real issues of people, of new people coming into the country. And what does that feel like for them? What does that feel like if the people that are already here haven't been informed 
or have been made to understand why people are here, what they're coming to do and what they contribute. Those conversations don't happen. So how, as long as we don't tackle racism and we keep pointing the finger at black and brown people for their problems, we then don't move on. And then we can say, yeah, multiculturalism has failed, but we failed. We failed those people that have come over here and we failed our society. if We don't actually support people in, in the round. So really important point to add, Audrey. No, thank you both so much for, for your contributions there. Now, uh, during that discussion, AA mentioned relying on evidence, reason and compassion uh, in, as part of the humanist mission. And our guest this week has made that his mantra um, in a new movement, which he calls sentientism. So here is my interview with Jamie Woodhouse, one of the leading advocates and campaigners from sentientism.info. Jamie Woodhouse is a leading advocate for sentientism a worldview uh, and a global movement which advocates for evidence, reason and compassion for all sentient beings. He's the host of the Sentientism podcast and runs several online groups with members in more than 100 countries. Um, In addition to this, he's uh, had a career for more than 20 years as a consultant and advisor and he lives in London with his family. Jamie, thank you very much for joining Humanism Now. How are you doing today? Yeah, great. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here with you and um, good to get the chance to talk to your audience. Hope things are going well in the first few episodes. It's been it's been an interesting start. Yeah. Uh, and uh, similar to yourself, we're finding listeners popping up all around the world, which is great to see, even though this is from the central London humanists, that we're having a global reach just like the sentientism movement. Yeah, it's great. So I guess the best place to start would be what is sentientism and what inspired you to create the network? So you've already given a great answer to that question in the intro by saying that sentientism is a worldview committed to evidence, reason and compassion for all sentient beings. So I, I, you know, most of your audience will be familiar with humanism as a worldview, and it's similar in some ways. It's trying to answer some of the really big, deep questions. You know, what's real? How should we understand the universe? Uh, how should we go about believing um, what's true? But just as importantly, the big questions of ethics, what matters and who matters. So sentientism, I guess, shares with humanism that sort of naturalistic approach to answering the big what's real question. Says, look, we should take a naturalistic approach using evidence and reason, a healthy dose of humility, and engage honestly with the reality to try and understand it. And on the ethical question, the answer, the clue is in the name, really, that we should have compassion for all sentient beings. Um, and that's where it does differ a little bit from humanism, although I think humanism itself might be shifting in this direction. Yes, I think there's definitely been a shift with the most recent Amsterdam Declaration to include uh, reference to uh, sentience and, and animal rights as well. How do you define sentience? And is there a consensus amongst the community or globally in terms of how we should define sentience or spot it in other creatures? Yeah, there is. Um, like all, I guess, human concept, it is a bit fuzzy. So you will hear different interpretations or different approaches but there is a core common center of gravity and i'd describe that as being sentiences the capacity to have valenced experiences Um, and by valenced i just mean valued in one way or another you know it could be good or bad so if you have experiences like you and i are having now i taste this cup of coffee it tastes good as a positively valenced experience if i take this pen and stab it into the back of my hand that's a negatively valenced experience so that's what i describe sentience as being it's um some people will go a little bit broad and say any experience at all you know if you could imagine having an experience that is totally neutral there's no 
good or bad in it whatsoever. But most people are focused on valenced experience. And you might use really broad terms like suffering to describe any bad or negatively valenced experience and maybe terms like flourishing or well-being to describe any good or positive experience. But it's it's not just a sort of narrow hedonic thing. It's not just pain and pleasure. I think of it as being much, much broader than that. It's any experience you might value in some way. So it can include existential angst, a sense of loss, you know, love, joy, you know, any feeling you like that has a positive or a negative aspect to it. All of those feelings should matter and any being that can experience them should matter. That's the core of it. Mm. So, so do you see that there's a scale or is this very much a binary a binary yes sentience no they're not you'll hear lots of different answers on this and sentientism itself is relatively neutral about those questions it just says that whatever a sentience is wherever it is whether it's bounded or graded it should matter and any being that has it should matter um but you you picked up some fascinating philosophical questions there you know is it binary is it on or off um is it uh crisply bounded or does it have fuzzy edges is it something we can understand with absolute clarity or is it just going to be a probabilistic thing where we're never 100% sure? Um, so it's different sentientists will dif- differ on that depending on their philosophy of mind and what they think the nature of sentience and consciousness are. Uh, my personal view, I guess, is grounded in an evolutionary story of why I think sentience came into existence. And in simple terms, and other sentientists, just to be clear, you know, may well disagree with me on this story, but this is my personal view, is that sentience probably came into existence through an evolutionary process around the Precambrian or the early stages of the Cambrian amongst very simple animals who developed a capacity to assess how they were doing moment to moment. And in a way, that's the root of sentence. You know, how are things going for me now? And how are things going for me now? You know, is something bad happening to me? Is something good happening to me? And the reason that was adaptive in an evolutionary sense is because it's pretty useful for an animal that lives in a moderately moderately complex decision environment where you've got options about, you know, particularly where to go, to be motivated to go towards good stuff and a bad away from bad stuff. So I think that was probably the, the sort of evolutionary route. And then you know, a few hundred million later, years later, here you and I are talking on a podcast. Um, but that evolutionary context leads me to think that the boundaries of sentience probably are fuzzy rather than, you know, mm. a crisp phase transition. I may be wrong. But at the same time, I still think it's true to say that there are some entities that we can say are not sentient and others are, but the boundary between them may well be fuzzy. I don't think it's a binary on-off switch. And I personally do think it is graded in some way and that, you know, the variety of experience that even you or I have day to day is not a simple thing you can put on a zero to 10 scale. You know, it's multidimensional and fuzzy and complex and breathtakingly rich. When you spread that out across all of human experience, it's even more dizzyingly multidimensional. And then when you consider the, you know, many non-human sentient beings that are out there, the potential range of their experiences, some of which we might even struggle to understand, is enormously rich and varied. So I don't really like approaches that sort of t- put, try to put it on a zero to mm. 10 scale. I like to think of it as a breathtakingly rich and complex, you know, range of potential experiences mm. that all sorts of different sentient beings might have. I, I take from that, do you see it that it's very much linked to being able to project into the future and compare current situation and f- emotions and feelings with either what's happened in the past or make decisions related to experience in the future i'm sure i'm not sure it needs that at the most basic level i think at the most basic level it literally can be this feels good or this feels bad 
it doesn't have to be in the context of you know a, a being being even aware of its own goals you know a being can literally just feel good or feel bad that is the most basic sort and of course as evolution has developed and you know the family trees moved on and you know certain types of animals have evolved into different niches we've layered on extra cognitive complexity onto that um such that you know the ability to plan for the future or think about others or um you know add co- cognitive complexity into the way we think about decisions has added richness onto it but the basic level at the root can just be that essential feel um and i think you can you can you can think about that in an evolutionary context going back to you know very simple animals and some of them obviously live with us today that maybe do have a very simple experience but you can think about that in a developmental sense as well if you think about a newborn baby they don't do much planning for the future they don't have an advanced degree of cognition they don't have a sense of a rich sense of self you know there's all sorts of this other stuff they just don't have but they can still feel pain and that should still matter even if it's you know that simple basic sentence that makes sense Um, i think that that's interesting though because there's a growing field of study which suggests that plants and particularly any uh, plant life that lives within an ecosystem can communicate or uh, respond to its environment and pass on messages mm. so would you see that as a, a a low level of sentience i wouldn't and the reason for that is well, the first thing i'd say is that sentientism itself is very neutral about which entities mm. are sentient it just doesn't tell us the answer it just says take a naturalistic approach to working yeah. it out so in simple ethical terms if we did come to think that there was a good chance that plants were sentient we should care about them morally absolutely um Having said that, my understanding of the scientific consensus at the moment is that I'm not aware of any serious scientist who's even proposed that plants are sentient. So when you read the magazine headlines that talk about, you know, someone says that plants can feel, um, that's what the editor and the reporter have written. But when you actually read the content of the article and when you go to the scientific paper that sits underneath that, if it's a reputable scientist, I've not come across any that are claiming that at all. But what that does mean, again, is that it leaves lots of space for very rich, complex behaviours and interactions that don't necess- aren't necessarily associated with sentience. So, yeah, we're learning all sorts of things about the microbiome and how plants might communicate. But um, they don't seem to have either the evolutionary context for things like motility and mobility and mm-hmm. a complex decision environment that led to sentience being developed in animals. Uh, they don't seem to, despite their ability to communicate at a basic level, they don't seem to behave and respond in the same way to stimulus and things that, you know, you might expect them to cause pain that we see in animals uh, where uh, tests are done with pain and stimulus responses and anaesthetic responses and so on that give us a very strong evidence base for animal sentience. And also they just don't seem to have the right sort of information architecture. So for all of the animals where we are confident in a sentience for other reasons, when you think about the information processing architecture they have, including a nervous system, uh, quite often with some degree of centralization, with you know processes of nociception and detection and you know cognition going on, even at a basic level, plants just don't seem to have that. You know, their cell structure, the cells are isolated from each other. Whereas yeah. in any being we're already confident of their sentience, there's a rich web of interconnecting chemicals and waves and patterns and firings going on that we just don't see in plants so we should be open-minded about it and keep following the science and you know if the science shows us that plants might be sentient we should care about them too absolutely but at the moment i don't think we need to worry about that too much and anyone who's you know compassionate enough to care deeply about plants um should of course 
care even more about the beings where we're absolutely confident they are sentient. So. Yeah, whether um, we can spot sentience. Obviously, one of the big developing topics that's everywhere at the moment is is the increase in generative AI and, you know, um, whether we're past the Turing test already. Um, I guess you're in quite a unique position having thought about sentience for so long. What What's your view on how we might be able to sense if an AI is truly sentient? And what do you think that would mean? Yeah. So there are some sentientists who think it is in principle impossible for an artificial intelligence to have sentience, either because of their philosophy of mind, they think it's just not a physicalist type thing, or because they think there are physical processes going on in biological beings, which might be to do with, you know, propagation waves or things that take it beyond what you know, digital computers are able to do. Personally, I'm not in that camp. I think um, sentience ultimately is an evolved class of information processing. And given the um, uh, universality of computation, ultimately, you know, if you can have a universal computer, it can compute anything. In principle, I don't see that there's a reason why an artificial intelligence couldn't be sentient. Um, and there's been some brilliant uh, philosophical work done recently by people like at the Sentience Institute and various other organizations who've dug really deeply into this topic. But from an amateur perspective, what I'd say is we can use some of the tool, same tools we use with biological beings. So we can think about behavior and communications and infer from that. You know, I can infer from the fact you're talking to me and we're on a Zoom call at the moment that you're highly likely to be sentient just like I am. I don't think you're some sort of zombie. I think if I you know, pinched you it would cause you pain. Um, I can, um, again, examine your information processing architecture. I could put you in an fMRI scanner and ask you some questions and see you know, similar firings and patterns of things going on in my mind and use that to infer um, that you're probably sentient too. And again, I can look at our evolutionary context and do something similar. The, the difficulty with artificial intelligence is we don't have that evolutionary context. So, um, uh, you know, that piece of evidence is missing. It's difficult to understand how to play that in. You can imagine certain types of artificial intelligences emerging through some sort of pseudo-evolutionary process, um, but, you know, that's not how they're really developed at the moment. Um, and it's also tricky because when it comes to thinking about their behaviour and communication, we're explicitly training them and designing them to replicate our behaviour. Yeah which means we're almost trying to get them to the point where they're convincing us of the behavior that might show that they're sentient, but without the underpinnings. And so there is absolutely a possibility. So some people will look at the behavior and the communication and say, look, it's rich, it's complex. It feels like it's sentient. Therefore it probably is. And others will go, well, yeah, but we've really trained it to demonstrate those things at the surface layer, but without the similar underpinnings, you know, maybe there just isn't feeling there. So, um, that's probably a, a sort of intro to it. I think philosophically it's possible. In principle, it's possible. There are, despite what I've just laid out, you know, ways we might be able to probabilistically and provisionally develop an assessment of um, artificial intelligence sentience. Um, but we've got to be careful. We can't just do the same thing we do with biological animals. There's some pitfalls there. Um, but sentientism would say, you know, we're using a naturalistic approach, developing sort of provisional and probabilistic views of whether they might 
you know, be sentient. We should be prudent about that. And if we think they could be, we should start to care about them. Now, one mm-hmm. of the one of the best research reports that's come out recently, um, I've been lucky enough to interview some of the people involved in its production, concluded roughly what I've just laid out, I think. It said, look, there are ways you can uh, use to assess sentience. Some of them are flawed and difficult, and some of them don't apply across biology and artificial, but here are some other things you can do as well. Their assessment was that current artificial intelligence is at the level of GPT-4 and you know the similar technologies are highly unlikely to be sentient for some of the reasons I've laid out. Um, but again, they agree that in principle it's it's possible and that it could be a looming ethical issue that we should take seriously and we shouldn't blunder into. You know, humanity has already created a, a range of different awful atrocities by denying the sentience of non-humans and you know let's not queue up another one before we fix the ones we're already running at industrial scale today and we want to make sure they are trained in compassion as well if they're going to um potentially be more more powerful than us well this is this and this is part of the point right so one of the things that really irritates many of the people in the sentientism movement is that they're focused understandably on the eight billion sentient humans on the you know maybe 100 billion sentient land animals in our farms that we exploit and slaughter every year and there may be one to two trillion aquatic animals that we slaughter and exploit every year and also the maybe you know god knows how many quintillion or sextillion free-ranging obviously sentient animals that live in the wild as well so they will sometimes look at this artificial intelligence thing and tear the hair out of frustration because it feels like humanity has this sort of you know fascination with could ais be sentient and that would really matter morally and many of the people in the sentientism movement are tearing their hair out and going, why are you so ready to care about potentially sentient artificial intelligences when you show scant disregard, brutal exploitative disregard for beings we absolutely know are sentient today? Um, So I understand that frustration, but I still think it's important to engage with because at the very least it enables us to make that point. It enables us to say, well, it's great that you are interested in artificial sentience. It's great that you would care about the sentience of, um, you know, artificial beings there was a survey that's literally just been released today by the sentience institute that i think showed that 71 percent of the respondents would care ethically about sentient ai um, so we can use that latent human compassion to one deal with that issue seriously but also draw people back to the issues of animal farming and exploitation that mm, we need to fix thinking and you're right that if we're you know one of the big central problems with when most people think about artificial intelligence and artificial intelligence risks and ethics, they're not worried about the risks to the AI. They're worried about risks to us from the AI because they might kill us or exploit us or do something that causes us harm. And I think that's a serious worry. Um, and, but one of the answers to that is, well, we, we need to think about aligning them to our values. But in doing that, you've got to think about what are our values and are they actually good values to align a powerful artificial intelligence to? And I would say that the idea that you take a powerful artificial intelligence that may soon be more intelligent and more powerful than we are and suggesting that they use us as an example, given how we treat much less powerful sentient beings, that's not a clever strategy. We are not a good example of how to treat weaker sentient beings by any means, right? So if AI learns from us, we could be in a whole world of trouble. So there's a bunch of reasons why I think it's still useful to engage in the artificial intelligence topic, even if your primary concern is you know, human and non-human animals. Yeah, I think it's fascinating. And, and I wonder if similar to, as you mentioned, these these things, it's it's not a binary um, indication of whether something is sentience, whether whilst we expect 
there'll be a, de- a sudden moment when we 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 can see the AI has turned on and it's 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 sentient. It's more likely that this is just something that potentially develops and over time, and then eventually we, we reach a point where there's a general consensus that yeah, actually. Um, it's conscious or, or or sentient yeah and there are some really interesting academics in the field who um take a more relational and a more social approach to it and they will almost say look in a way it, it, it won't matter whether the entity mm. itself actually is sentient maybe we'll never really know in the same way as you could say you and i might never really 100 percent know that each other are sentient you know we're just sort of inferring it but they say what will matter more is um how we come to relate to these entities and what our social how our social norms develop and you know people are already starting to treat artificial entities as if they were sentient if, as if they were agents as if they were you know other beings even though we know they're not so in a way that sort of social and relational context is going to force the issue as much as you know scientifically independently assessing whether the being is actually experiencing or not whether it can really feel pain what do you see as the role of humans within a sentient worldview? Do do they have a special place within the ecosystem, or, or um, should we think of them as should we think of humans as separate um, to to other animals? So the, I'll say no, and then maybe. <laughs> so so in a sense, no. I mean, part of what sentientism is trying to do is trying to decenter us as humans. It's trying to move away from anthropocentrism and more aggressively, a you know, a, a human supremacy, which I would suggest is our dominant stance in the world today. Uh, and that human supremacy is, I think, common across most of the religious worldviews, and it's common across many of the non-religious worldviews. And unfortunately, I think is still pretty central to humanism too. And whether it's for scientific reasons or whether it's because, you know, we are made in the image of deity, the idea behind human supremacy is, you know, this world exists, you know, either God is most important or put them to the side if you don't believe in a God, but then it's humans, right? And and the rest of the world and everything else really is just here for us. Um, so that includes animals, that includes plants, it includes the environment, you know, we might be there to steward it if you like but really we're there to have sort of dominion over it control over it and we can do what we like for our ends because our ends are the only thing really that matters it's human well-being human flourishing and so on those are the only things that really matter everything else is just there instrumentally so sentientism is deliberately trying to break that and undermine it and move away from it and say no all sentient beings matter you know we all know this to some extent already you know anyone who's got a companion animal or cares about a wild animal they find injured already cares already has compassion that goes beyond the human we know that non-humans who can feel pain and who can experience things matter so in a sense i'm simply trying to pick that up and say look and we should care about all of those sentient beings so it does try and destroy human supremacy and completely undermine it and say look humans aren't distinctive or special in that sense you know every sentient being matters but at the same time it's not suggesting that we flatten everything and ignore all of the differences and ignore all the variety i think you can still recognize the moral salience of every sentient being and then still recognize the dizzying variety of you know fascinating experiences and power and privileges and um situations and contexts and cultures all across all of that sentient kind um so that does still leave space for us to recognize that i don't you know that humans do have dis- some distinctive capabilities uh, we have a lot of capabilities that non-human animals don't have but there are many non-human animals who have capabilities we don't so we're not a sort of pinnacle of some uh 
list of skill or list of sentience or even intelligence. Um, you know, I think we need to recognize that diversity. But one thing that is definitely special about us is the amount of power we've got. Um, our power is overwhelming and unprecedented. And uh, I would argue so far from the perspective of sentient kind has been uh, awful and brutal and horrific and exploitative. Um, and it's been that way for quite a lot of other humans as well. Right? So, so that power is unquestionable. Our track record is pretty awful, I think, within humankind and certainly for wider sentient kind, whether you're living in the wild or settled, you've been captured in one of our farms or a fishing net. Um, and that power has led many people to a sort of misanthropic view where, you know, people will say things like humans are the virus or they might be led into sort of eco-fascism where they think that humans are the problem. And I prefer a more positive cast, which is to say, look, we're enormously powerful, but imagine what we could do if we, you know, redirected that power for good and we chose a better role we want to play yeah. in the world. Um, and in a way, I think that's sort of what humanism has been trying to do within the human species. It's saying, look, you know, in a way, we are lucky to have this power. We have this influence and we have this, difficult and terrible history often but there's potential there as well as we do have care about each other and we do want to make things better and we can actually change the role of humanity for itself and yeah i guess my stance on sentientism is saying this is an, an extra stretch an extra challenge but human humanity could actually decide to radically shift its role and its influence in a positive way for the whole of sentient kind too um, so, yeah, I think it's, it's our power that makes us distinctive. But I guess that's the crux of, of the question is that we are probably the only species or we assume the only species with the degrees of conscious freedom to make those kind of conscious decisions. Yeah. So, you know, do we have extra responsibilities within um, within um, the, the climate that we live in yeah. um to maintain uh, the rest of the ecosystem and, and and should there be rights that come with those responsibilities i i think so absolutely and again i'd, I'd say that's true even within humankind right the more power you have i'd argue if you want to be a moral person the more responsibility you have to use that power for good um and it's absolutely true across sentientity too um uh, so uh, yeah, that's the sh that's the short answer. I think with that enormous power we have, if we want to be moral, and I think we do, and if we want to extend that moral consideration to every being that has the capacity to suffer, then we should want to use that power and redirect it to for better ends. And the the irony here is that it's not that hard. Um, it's not as if we need to invent some radical new technology or come up with some completely different philosophy or for science to make a thousand year leap forward. Right, the basics we already know we understand naturalistically how to understand reality we have a pretty solid ethical basis that cares about all sentient beings the science and philosophy are pretty straightforward and with many of the human cause problems around the world we already have the technolo technological solution ready today so whether the problem is you know the environmental crisis or whether it's uh, animal agriculture and fishing we have the solutions that are ready right now so in a weird sense you know, it's it's not so much a philosophical problem or a scientific problem. It's one of human psychology and social norms and political will. Um, so I think it may say, sound sort of naive to say humanity has this chance to radically shift our role for the benefit of all 
sentient kind, but it's also not that hard to do if only we can capture the will to do it. And as with any extension of our moral scope, it's good for the people doing the extending too, right? And, and given the nature of the environmental crises and public health crises and um, issues around water use and land use and pollution and zoonosis and antimicrobial resistance and so on and so forth, um, even in a very selfish human sense, extending our moral scope and you know shifting this role of humanity, I think is an imperative even for our own well-being and survival, you know, let alone through the moral imperative of wanting to care about non-humans too. Mm. On on the techn- technology uh, side of things, we've had a question that's been sent in by Audrey Simmons, who's one of our regular panellists. Yeah, I know Audrey, yeah. CLH and the Association of Black Humanists. Um, and, and her question is around lab-grown meats, mm. obviously, again, been in the news quite a lot lately, um, and whether these are an acceptable alternative or a happy median um, from between animal farming uh, or, or going, you know, all the way to veganism. What's your view on lab-grown meat? Yeah, so I, I guess this is probably the most culturally dissonant implication of sentientism right, is about what we eat and the products we, we eat and our agricultural systems. Um, because I think most many people would agree with, you know, evidence, reason and compassion for all sentient beings, that sounds fine. But when you point out to them that having compassion for sentient beings means that you wouldn't farm them, <laughs> All of a sudden, you know, the, the alarm bells go on and people start to realise how radical this worldview is. Um, but I think it's a direct implication of taking the perspective of those other beings. If you imagine what they go through, and this isn't just factory farming, this is any farming process. Um, in simple terms, it's exploitative and unethical. And the good news is that we don't need to do it. Um, and I will come back to Audrey's question in a moment. So, um when I say we have the answers already, in the agricultural space, the answer basically is plants. <laughs> and the irony is we already make three or four times more plants than we need to feed humans today. The problem is we feed an enormous amount of that, uh, and the land use is the equivalent of a you know continent and a half. We feed an enormous amount of those plant crops to animals that we then kill to eat. And when you feed the plant crops to the animals you lose 95% of the nutritional and calorific value. So it's one of the most catastrophically wasteful processes on the planet, even if you put the morality to one side. So in a sense, we have that solution today already because we could feed all of the humans on the planet with plant-based food at the same time as freeing up half of the world's agricultural land for other environmentally positive and ethically positive uses. So, And the reason I'm focusing on that before answering Audrey's question is because the idea that we have to, you know, I'm waiting for clean meat or I'm waiting for cultivated meat or I'm waiting for someone who's made a, a technically ex- exactly the same product before I'm willing to switch, frankly, is a cop-out because we already have plants and plant-based solutions that are completely nutritionally complete today. But so to answer your question, um, you'll get actually some different views from sentientists about uh uh, cultivated meat and cell-based meat and um, fermented products and these things that we're actually trying to replicate uh, very exactly dairy, egg and meat products. And I think the centre of gravity of people will say these are a good thing because we understand culturally and psychologically and socially how difficult it is for people to switch away from s- consuming some of these products, even when they see the moral and the environmental catastrophe they cause. We know change is hard, right, for human human brains. So, Tactically, these products feel like an important step because for those holdouts or for those people who find it really psychologically difficult, if we can present them with something which is technically exactly the same, maybe better, right? It would be less environmentally harmful. It will probably be tastier. It will probably be more uh, more healthy. 
um, then it just takes away some of those other reasons and those other blockers and it removes the blockers to free people up to do what they already know is the right thing, which is to end animal agriculture. Um, so, so overall, I think the central gravity is quite positive about those products, as long as they are produced in ways that don't cause exploitation, suffering or death. And in the early evolutions of some of those products, they were using animal products in the process um, and they're increasingly moving away from that. Um, but interestingly, there are also some people who take a different philosophical stance, which says that um, even if those products are exactly the same, even if they're produced without causing any exploitation at all, there's still an issue about the association psychologically and philosophically with something terrible that makes people want to turn away from those products. And there's also a worry that um, we might be doing something that I sometimes call ethical bypassing, which is um, if we find an alternative, which means we can stop doing something bad without ever having to face up to the ethics, that's good because we're not doing a bad thing anymore. But is there a risk that those ethics remain and we may go on to do something in the future that is equally horrific? So that, I think there's a worry there about ethical bypassing around yeah. some of those products. But generally, I think the way it's going to work is that those products, as well as the, you know, the fact that plants are edible and plant-based products are uh, out there already, will just become more and more prevalent. The default, the cultural center of gravity will shift. Um, people will move across to them whether or not they've thought deeply about these issues. And as they do so, it will free people up because we'll no longer be complicit in the harms. And once you're no longer complicit in a harmful system it becomes much easier to see it more clearly you can see through the marketing and the bullshit and you can free your own latent ethic which is that only a psychopath would want to needlessly harm kill or exploit another sentient being surely so i i think that's a more positive path that you know there's these alternatives and our cultural default shifts um it will just become easier and easier and easier for people to essentially put their latent compassionate sentiocentric ethics into practice that's the plan which it's against your position do you find the most challenging or, or, or difficult to defend yeah um, i'd break it into two things because i think most of the challenges are actually about the implications of sentientism not the core which i find instructive in itself because there's an implication that um people actually agree with the basics the philosophy what they're doing is struggling to come to terms with that because of their own psychology and because of social norms and because of other things that are important to them um so i think it's quite interesting to start with a basic understanding of the philosophical stance and engage with that richly and then come on to think about the implications because if you start with the implications first your psychology will just look for excuses to undermine the philosophy um and there are plenty of challenges in those implications there are challenges about um you know capacity and ability and access and um and how demanding should we be about ourselves um you know is it enough just to not needlessly harm others or should we actively help um you know as our moral scope extends beyond friends and family and you know the eight billion humans to even more mind-boggling numbers of other sentient beings how do we prioritize causes um uh, and how do we handle with the sheer the sheer complexity of that so there are plenty of different challenges there which i do find difficult and those are fascinating to engage with but when it comes back to the core of sentientism, this idea of evidence, reason, and compassion for all sentient beings, this will sound silly, but I, I struggle to find good 
quality challenges to engage with. Because on the naturalistic front, sentientism isn't saying here's a list of beliefs you have to believe, and then we can fight about that and have discussions about the evidence. It's, it's saying the method we should use to understand reality is to use evidence and reasoning. So to challenge that, either you have to present me with some evidence and reasoning about why evidence and reasoning isn't a good way of understanding things by which you've defeated your own argument, <laughs> or you have to present something alternative to evidence and reason. And those, the only ones I've come across so far are sort of fideism, you know, a base, a belief based on an arbitrary faith or a dogmatism, which believes a set of things and those dogmas will not change if the evidence changes or frankly, even fabrications where you just made something up or believe something somebody else has made up. So I struggle to, see any of those as serious challenges to a naturalistic approach that uses evidence and reason in a humble way to try and understand reality. So it's difficult because it's almost tautological to my way of understanding reality to see a valid challenge. But it's similar on the ethical front too, partly because it almost feels tautological to me. If you're, if our understanding of morality is about the choice to care about others and what we mean when we say others is those who have their own perspective uh, their own existence, their own experiences, their own interests, their own needs. And morality is our choice about whether and how to care about them. I don't understand why we would exclude any valid other from moral consideration. As soon as there is a being that has their own interests, their own needs, their own experiences, values themselves in some way, I've yet to come across a reason for why we should exclude them from moral consideration. So, it's part, so it's, it's, it's almost that these two things, this evidence and reason commitment to naturalism and this sentiocentric caring about all sentient beings, I think are difficult to disagree with because they're almost tautological. But again, you know, maybe I've just become trapped in my own worldview. But, uh, but, but at the same time, there are many, many fascinating and difficult decisions still to take because it's such a broad pluralistic worldview. It doesn't tell us the answer to all of these difficult problems. It just says, use evidence and reason to understand reality take account of every sentient being in your moral consideration. And there's still so many really difficult and practical problems we need to work through. And that's, I think, where the real challenge is. Do you have a good case, perhaps if you're trying to convince someone who is more conservative-minded, what the conservative case for sentientism would be? Yeah, uh, I think the types of things you can appeal to are conserving the environment plays in well. So if they're the type of conservative that wants to conserve the environment, which unfortunately seems to be quite rare these days, <laughs> that can play in. Um, you can appeal to conservative values about fairness and justice uh, and talk about how to extend them more broadly than just humans. So I think there are ways you can do it. Um, uh, and it partly depends on what you mean by conservative, because one of the fascinating things about this sort of very amorphous global community or movement uh, and it is you know very fuzzy and very open um is is that there's quite it's pluralistic so there are lots of different political stances people can take as well um and they'll have different views on economics so there are people who think we should have more of a, a state-driven economy there are people who think we can have more of a compassionate sort of con um, compassionate version of capitalism um so views on sort of political economy vary quite widely there are views on different political systems as well so there are people who think anarchism or some form of socialism or some form of uh, social democracy or again well-regulated market capitalism might be the right uh, sort of 
political structure too. So there's a lot of diversity there. Um, but I think where sentientism uh, is narrower in its political stances is it doesn't play well with social conservatism. Because if, if a social conservatism is thinking about traditional ways of people playing certain roles and restricting them into those roles, if it's more about uh, in-group, out-group distinctions and maybe exclusionary ethics where certain groups are deprecated or excluded or not seen as important, sentientism breaks that stuff completely. So I think there's quite a lot of space politically for different you know, modes of political engagement and economic models, and people will still have viciously fiery debates about you know, which is the right answer to get to a more compassionate world. But there are also certain aspects of, you know, political culture that just crash straight up against sentientism's universal compassion and crash straight up against sentientism's commitment to using evidence and reason to ground our beliefs. Um, so authoritarianism doesn't work. Dogmatism doesn't work. Uh, exclusionary ethics doesn't work. Uh, any form of unfounded discrimination doesn't work, intrahuman or beyond. You know, those things go up against sentientism and sentientism rejects them. But there's still quite a lot of other, you know, pol political diversity I think we can engage with there. What is the end goal for sentientism and, you know, particularly the, the movement that you're advocating for? So this this will sound naive, right? But it, it feels like almost every human cause problem we're facing either comes down to a failure of compassion. You know, some group has decided not to care about some other group or some other individual. It's an ethical failing. We've just excluded them. Um, and that might be other humans, or it might be farmed animals, it might be wild animals. So, and that leads to obvious problems. If you exclude a group or discriminate against a group, we know what that leads to. Um, or it's a, it's a problem of facts and evidence and reason. You know, good, compassionate people can do terrible things if they believe things that are wrong. And you can see that running through, I would argue, religions, but also new religious movements and cults, conspiracism, QAnon, uh, various political movements, um, where, you know, even good, decent people, you know, these are not psychopaths, because they have come to believe in the QAnon myths or, you know, a, a spiritual voice has told them to do something terrible, they're led astray, right? So, so it's either because of a failure of compassion or a failure of understanding. So the, the naive view is that if we can help all humans upgrade their epistemology to being at least, you know, sort of humble naturalism and that ensure that they don't exclude any sentient being for any reason from their moral consideration, that could solve all of the world's problems. So that's the that's the sort of end state is that pretty much everybody agrees with sentientism and thereby we solve all the world's problems. <laughs> but, in, but in more practical terms, it would be a world where we would have moved to a state where we've ended intrahuman discrimination and radically mitigated all of the causes of human suffering, war, poverty, uh, you know, many health issues, and we'd be making positive progress on all of those things. It would have a complete end to animal agriculture and exploitation. Um, and maybe we would even have freed ourselves up to think a bit more intelligently and compassionately about whether it makes sense to help animals that are free ranging and living in the wild too. And maybe by then, you know, we'd have some artificially intelligent friends to help us out and that we should be caring about too. So it's, it's too broad and vague and naive, right? But in, at the same time, it, it's supposed to be quite a fundamental intervention because, you know, all human decisions ultimately, whether we know it or not, are based on our worldviews. Yeah. Those central questions of understanding reality and who do we care about, I think, are the absolute core of uh, a robust worldview. I wondered, what is something which you've changed your mind on recently, but perhaps related to sentientism or, or otherwise? Yeah, so the, the, the obvious things I've changed my mind on is, and this is going back a while, but one was, you know, moving away from being Christian to being an atheist to humanism and, and so on. The other one was, I guess, 
moving towards sentientism and putting that into practice in veganism but those are sort of self-serving obvious answers i guess what within the scope of this sentientism thing one of the things that's um shifted for me personally is i've become more ethically pluralistic so i probably started out being a bit more utilitarian in the way i was thinking about things and for your listeners who are aware of you know these different schools of thought utilitarianism is simply thinking about um you know well-being or utility as being the good thing we're trying to aim for and we should try and maximize that in some sense and over time i've moderated that and broadened my own thinking out and i've become more determined to make sentientism ethically pluralistic so that there is space also for a feminist care ethic that is grounded in relations of care for other sentient beings uh, can be a virtue ethic that sees a virtue in kindness uh, uh, and justice and extending that to other sentient beings uh, can be a sort of Kantian or a deontological approach that sees all sentient beings as ends in themselves that warrant rights um, and even you know relational approaches that in a very open-minded way recognize that in some sense we are related we have relations with every sentient being and that should lead us to practical care and compassion so that's probably the thing that's shifted i've become sort of less focused on utilitarianism and more ethically pluralistic as we think about how to put this into place what is the best first step that anybody can take Um, and secondly how can they find out more and get in touch with you so if you like to read, then the website sentientism.info is probably a good starting point. If you want to join a group, and these groups are open to anyone interested, you don't have to be a sentientist to, to join them. So we have people with religious worldviews. We have people um, with all sorts of different moral scopes in there as well. But um, search for sentientism on your favorite social media platform and you'll find us. But the biggest is on Facebook. So come and join us there if you want to join a group and just get involved in some of the conversations. If you like watching stuff, then our YouTube is a great place to go. I've been lucky to interview ceos philosophers celebrities sociologists scientists activists of all different stripes some of whom don't agree with sentientism but you'll really get a pluralistic sense of what these different ways of thinking can mean and if you like listening then the same stuff is on the podcast the sentientism podcast too um but i'd love to continue the conversation whether people you know agree or not i just want to keep the mm. conversation flying and yeah search for sentientism anyway and you'll find us and i'm on twitter at jamie woodhouse but also at sentientism too so Wonderful. We'll share all of the links in the show notes. Um, But Jamie Woodhouse, thank you so much for your time. uh, And thank you for joining us on Humanism Now. It's been such a pleasure. Jamie Woodhouse there. I wondered, Audrey, what are your views? Do you think that we as humanists should all adopt a sentientist uh, perspective and become vegan? I think veganism, yes, I think we can kind of think about it and, and really look at our values on what does it mean to be vegan and why we're doing it i don't i don't i'm not opposed to that i think what what is being asked isn't just about being a vegan though and i think this is the struggle um that i think we have it's about a lifestyle a culture um and you know it's not just about the sunday roast it's about how we deal with animals in general, how we how we view them within our society. Um, you know, we have uh, we have certain animals as pets, but others we're quite happy to stamp on. So, you know, see if you know we've got our little dogs, but we've got our spiders. We've got a whole range of animals, and we have to we have to then not divide them up and say, well, you're okay. We can love and care for you, but there are others we don't actually like, you're ugly, you know what I mean? (laughs) Or whatever, we decide that we don't actually want you. 
So what he's advocating is that actually this isn't the way that we need to be thinking of. You know, they're not there for our enjoyment when they're not just there for us. They have their own place. They have their their own space with and we share that space and we need to treat them better. They're not beasts of burdens. We, you know, we need to be doing better with them. And I think it sounds simple. And when you hear it, you kind of go, yes. But when you're looking at how society has been constructed over centuries, over you know, millennia, how we have constructed our society, that is a huge, huge change, huge, massive. Um, and whole economies and whole ways of being ha- are are being asked to be changed, and that's a that's a generational thing. And we can see veganism is now becoming, you know, much more accepted and you know, an easier. It's easier to be a vegan than it was in the nineteen seventies or sixties or even further back. And veganism itself isn't new, but this whole idea of changing how we view our animals and our friends and you know the ones we like the ones we don't like and the whole way we use animals in our life and in our society that's a bigger that's a bigger job and i wish him all the very best uh, it is quite a big mission that he set himself um aj i think you're part of the sentientism community uh, how have you found it well i've actually been on a, a journey as well the past couple of years transitioning to veganism um, you know, I, will, I always say that I, I try and be a humanist. I wouldn't declare myself to be a humanist and to be sort of suddenly perfectly in sync with all the values and goals in the same way, uh, veganism as well. Um, it's it, it's a very high bar uh, to set. Uh, I think I'm. it's a good challenge that I've taken on personally. Uh, it may not be for, for everyone. Uh, and I think there is a certain compulsion that I think some people feel rightly or wrongly. And there is a veganism and sort of vegan trend and lifestyle uh, on almost like a trope now that some people are trying to react against. So we have to be careful about how this may be turned into a, an identity and the politics around it. But for me personally, uh, veganism, it was the right choice to make, I think, morally um, for the care of uh, and the uh, consideration of of animals and, and other uh, sentient sentient creatures that we share this this planet with. So I would also consider myself a sentientist. We mentioned before the Declaration uh, on Modern Humanism, which replaced the Amsterdam Declaration when we were defining what humanism is. And here's an example of maybe an attack or a challenge to humanism coming from uh, one aspect, which is why why only humans? I mean, why do you only care about humans or why are humans the most important? And we actually answered this in, in the Declaration of Modern, Human answer, Modern Humanism answered this before by saying, it's not that we value humans as somehow the high watermark of all creation, but it's just that we we value the human perspective and human values as giving us the best window into being the best partners with other creatures on this planet. So human values such as empathy, such as in curiosity, investigation, free expression, which are also there in other members of the animal kingdom as well, and communication and flourishing, uh, we can see depending on how you define it in plants and, and, and so many other organisms. So it's not that humans are somehow unique, or we have an exceptionalist uh, approach to humans, which sometimes sent into challenges um, with. It's not that. It's just that through the human lens, and of course, we are all human, so we have a biased uh, perspective towards the human lens, admittedly. Um, maybe the dolphin's lens is a, is a much better place to have. We don't know, and we'll, we'll never know. 
um, until we sort of do- solve uh, consciousness and and the spectrum of consciousness as well, which we don't have time to get into at the moment, but maybe in future episodes. So I think it's an important challenge that humanism should take on. And for me personally, it's it's been very rewarding. I've improved in my health, in my mental faculties, and for focus psychologically, it's been very helpful for me. And it's interesting to, to link back to the previous topic on refugees and asylum seekers. I would say maybe a massive challenge for the human species is to first treat all of us, each other, with equal respect and recognize that we all have a common home. Uh, globally in this planet and we're not all just me some of us aren't just means to an end or aren't just political tools to be used so we should probably start there so i think maybe there's also a a humanist challenge to humanists let alone the sentient sentientist challenge to uh, humanists as well because if we can't even come to a place where we're treating each other with equal respect uh, then you know what hope is there for uh, us to sort of convince ourselves and have the necessary debates to make sure that we're taking care of other sentientist uh, sentient organisms in the way that they deserve as well so i would say in terms of maybe a um, a demand or a requirement that all humanists should be vegan i wouldn't put it that way at all and we'll come to this in in uh, in the next uh, part of the episode as well we talk about maybe some religious people using the label humanist so we don't define and we don't control and we're not jealous about who uses the word humanist we as a humanist movement define it ourselves and we try to uh, give the most sensible way of defining it and using it so if someone wants to attach that as a necessary and sufficient condition that you need to be vegan in order to be humanist okay uh, that can be them but it's not in any of the uh, leading humanist organizations definitions and it's not a key pillar of the movement that all that all humanists need to be vegan because we're not a doctrinal movement we don't have that kind of enforcing nature as other belief systems have but given the evidence base and given the climate change and carbon um, utilization considerations with a non-vegan diet and given the empathy side of humanism and empathy for all sentient organisms it could be a very very good idea uh, to be vegan i think every time i speak with jamie it he, he makes a very good case but i i absolutely agree that i think the biggest challenge that and uh, potential argument against the position is let's sort out the human problems first and i think with with so many that are so pressing as we've already covered it it, it makes or the more bad news there is out there but particularly um uh around the treatment of other humans the more difficult it makes uh his case and we did kind of touch on that during the during the interview as well i think that um i mean he very much sees it that the, everything we, we should be taking into account all of these issues um yeah. in parallel you know there's no reason to stop one and favor the other I but i think in everybody's day-to-day um you know when when you when you only have a limited number of hours and and, and energy to to uh, to spend um I think there is a natural bias towards humans um, or, or the flourishing of the human species, um, even amongst humanists at the moment. But I, I agree that I think it's changing. Um, I, I, I think it's sometimes a good exercise to project into the future as well and think, what will people in like a hundred or a thousand years time looking back on us? What will they see as our big moral, ethical blind spots, the way that we judge those in the past as well? And I think we've touched on two of the key areas today. Um, one being national borders um, and how we treat those from different backgrounds of different countries. And I think the second being the rights of non-human animals. I suspect in the future, people will look back on us and think that, that their treatment of animals is is barbaric. Couldn't agree more. Yeah, I think we are. 
That's a very true statement. I mean, even the word aliens that we use, and especially in America, it's still used, I think, although they're using it less now for illegal immigrants. Mm. Uh, I think in Japan, they used to call it an alien card or alien registration card. Now they call it a foreigner registration card. So I think all over the world, and you can quite easily see people who are afraid of change. It's quite a natural human instinct to resist change or resist something that you don't know the other in-group and out-group dynamics. So it's part of our human nature. We just have to understand it and try to compensate for it. And I absolutely agree with what we said earlier. We can walk and chew bubblegum. We can do many things at once. And actually some of the same societal, psychological, cognitive skills that we need to overcome the barriers in alienation between humans are also the same things that we need to overcome the barriers in alienation between us and chickens or us and the way that we treat cows or fish. It's, it's the same... Uh, psychological resource that we have to draw on. So even though human nature can be sort of a gift and a curse, we have to remember it can be a gift and a curse. So we're not completely uh, disabled uh, by just our natural, you know, instincts to be tribalistic and to be afraid of change. I think we humans do have the power to um, solve the problems that the future presents in that way. Thanks, AJ. Thanks, Audrey. Now, every week we source a question from our listeners um, uh, to put to our panel here. And this week we've been sent a question from Stephen in North London. Um, and he asks, is it possible for a humanist to have a religious faith? So, uh, Audrey, maybe I'll come to you first on that one. I think we kind of see humanism. I whether I view my humanism is my life without the ideal concept of, of living with a God. What do, how I do, what do the, what are the principles that I use um, to then live my life? Um, but I suppose that there are aspects of, 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 of humanism that are very much part of, of the religious um, thinking, altruism, all of these kinds of things, kindness, that we don't have a monopoly on any of those things. So, um, I suppose it would be difficult for me to say you can't be a, a religious person and be a humanist. Um, I just think that it, it just becomes the religion already has all of these things that they're supposed to be doing anyway. So um, I'm wondering why commandeer that word? <laughs> you said what? What's the? Um, so it's just I suppose that maybe just to be about language, but it's also about who you want to sit with and how you want to be seen and being a humanist and, you know, being but still being religious. It kind of it doesn't it doesn't sit well with me. Um, if you're religious, you're doing things, you're doing them for a God. You're doing them within with all of that in mind. And that doesn't stop you from doing things that we would consider, not even consider, but are part of the humanist uh, humanist thinking. They're not devoid of each other. The, the, the main separate separate thing that separates us is the belief in a God. But I say we got the humanist principles are humanist are human principles. So you can't really separate them. But the bit about God doesn't then kind of make you a humanist in in the sense that I live my life. Yeah, I, I think I, I'm I'm with you on most of that, Audrey. And I, I actually think this might be one we could pull out into a full uh, episode uh, at a future date. Um, but yeah, I uh, I guess briefly, I feel in a similar way. I, I I think I think of humanism as a kind of ideal to strive towards. I, as, I think as AJ mentioned, it's always aiming to to do better. And to me, what it mostly comes down to is how we treat each other. It's it's more about how you treat 
your fellow human. So I don't like to stake a sort of uh, claim that you have to be atheistic in order to treat people well. I don't think that's true, and I don't think it would be right to suggest that. Um, and when I, in the past, when I've had discussions on what is a humanist with with friends of faith, and I sent them some of the brief descriptions some of the definitions and what humanists tend to believe, they'll generally say, yeah, I agree with all of that. With the one caveat that they, they have a, some form of religious belief um, uh, or, or they believe in a God or, or gods. Um, and I think there can be conflicts there. I agree that I think there, there, there can be contradictions in holding both views, but who amongst us doesn't have contradictions. So yeah, I lean more towards the, um side of saying no i don't think it's i don't think it excludes people who have some form of faith and of course we know there are lots of people who are culturally um religious they may maintain a lot of their religious culture but still be very humanistic in their beliefs and their actions but um hey Jay, you have studied um many faiths and are involved in interfaith dialogue so what what's your opinion yeah this remi- this question reminded me of a, a friend that i have uh, he's uh, a Catholic uh, priest, but he calls himself a humanist. He calls himself a Christian humanist. He's also an, an ex-Trotskyist, and he has quite a colourful background in all kinds of politics and ad- activism and radicalism. But I think he might be an example of someone who's confusing, and I have had the discussion with him, humanism with humanitarianism, or, or just being humane, or uh, just being humankind. Uh, which, I mean, all of these uh, are not alien to uh, humanism itself either. Uh, And um, I think points us towards an important lesson that we shouldn't be being quite jealous about the terms and being very guarded about, oh, well, no one else can use humanism in ways that they want to apart from us is not the way that we want to go down. Uh, That path leads to uh, language policing, and it just wastes a lot of energy, I think, a lot of hot air. We as a humanist movement can be very open and transparent about what our mission is, what our goals are, and how we see ourselves. Because if you don't define yourselves, then your opponents may may define uh, you for you, uh, which we don't want. Uh, so I think it's important to be clear about what the humanist movement stands for, and the Declaration of Modern Humanism does that. And it includes things like, for example, sentience that we mentioned in the previous discussion. Um, in the interfaith uh, groups that you speak of, I mean, I, I study the Quran uh, weekly and the Gita as well. We just finished in a community study class online that we started just at amateurs meeting online that we started over the pandemic. So I'm very, very interested in how people form their beliefs, the wisdom and the content of holy texts and other texts, and what aspects of humanism I can see in that and what aspects of cooperation I can see, because that's my natural instinct. And I have been called by Muslim friends that I respect, uh, a Muslim myself in a lowercase, with a lowercase m, so like a small c conservative and small m Muslim. And other Baha'i friends have I've just presumed that I'm Baha'i without me actually saying anything until it's only when they ask me and I say, no, I am, I'm an agnostic, I'm a humanist, they would say, oh, they'd be quite surprised. But I think that's that's ultimately uh, for me, that's quite flattering because that's what I want to get to. Even though I am a humanist, that that facilitates my access to a common humanity that other religions and faith and beliefs should be facilitating their adherents and their followers to get to a common humanity. And they can meet me in the middle. They can meet me at that common kitchen table of humanity. But if their human, if their religion and their faith is preventing that, is 
proving an obstacle to them accessing a common humanity rather than being a facilitator, then that's a problem. And again, humanism can also be an obstacle. Any belief system practiced in a very jealous, wrong, immoral, greedy way uh, and non-empathetic way can become an obstacle. And that's exactly what we want to avoid. So in doing that, I think this allows me to work with in interfaith projects and other social justice projects, for example, in helping refugees, the Refugee Support Project, uh, the charity that we founded seven years ago locally in West London, where I live. It's an interfaith charity. I'm the only humanist on the board. And there's Christians, there's Muslims, there's Buddhists, there's uh, Unitarians and other Christian denominations there on the board. And we can we can make some real change. If we fell out over each other, um, over what terms that we use, or about our theological differences, then that would, would have been a real shame. And we'd never have been able to achieve whatever small good that we managed to achieve in uh, helping people in need. So I think, sure, humanists can be, and especially if we, if we take into account the idea of belief, belonging, and behavior, which is a sociological definition of what a religion slash belief system is, football teams, humanists, um, uh, religions, the major world religions, Islam, Christianity, Hinduism, they all fall within that common definition because they all exhibit common beliefs, common belonging, and a common behavior and rituals and ceremonies, etc. So that sociological definition may suggest that humanism actually is, is itself a religion. But as Audrey said, we don't have a belief in the afterlife or a belief in a supernatural power. So that, that's a key difference uh, to other, other religions. And if this has to be the, if this is the sort of hill that we want to die on, I think it's it's not worth it. I mean, if people want to call themselves a Christian humanist or a Muslim humanist, okay, you know, the words, words are free to use in, in whatever they like, especially if it's an opinion. And as long as they're not making a, a claim that affects me and my life as a humanist, sure, you know, more power to them. Plenty more to cover there. As mentioned, this might well be a topic for another day. Um, and thanks for getting us started on what is a religion, AJ. That's certainly another one to add to the list with that i think that uh brings to uh, brings to a close this week's episode um aj audrey do you have anything uh going on in the next couple of weeks that you'd like to mention um we have um our study group that we that happens every two weeks so we just had one this thursday and we have another one in two weeks time that happened online so you can find us on meetup association of black humanists and it's a study group we're looking at the little book of humanists um humanism sorry um at the moment so pages 101 onwards you don't have to read the whole book but it does help if you've read some of it and know know what it's about and how it how it's constructed and stuff like that and we're just going through it and just talking about how it affects us and you know what our views are and just kind of discussing humanism generally so for people who don't really know about humanism or want to discuss it in a in you know a deeper way please do come along as i say we're on meetup association of black humanists 10th of october so um i look forward to seeing everyone there Fantastic. We will add the link to the show notes. And AJ, what have you got going on at the moment? Well, there's a lot that we're doing in London Humanists, especially as it, as it relates to socials. We've just had our monthly Sunday lunch meet, which we try and do uh, because a lot of people aren't available in our weekdays socially with other humanists and like-minded people, which we find is very important, especially again for apostates and people questioning their faith. We've just had that. So the next one will be at the end of September. 
uh, and all of the other dates will be on our socials. And then this next coming week, we've got an online discussion group on uh, should the burning of religious texts be allowed. And our discussion uh, discussions are online spaces for key current affairs issues to be debated and picked apart. And we've chosen this one because of what's been happening in the Nordic countries recently with the resurgence in the debate on how far should we go in terms of religious tolerance and also Islamophobia claims as well, and what role the state should have in that in symbolic protests that may offend people of religious faith. So that should be a lively one and very much looking forward to that. If any listeners do want to join, again, just follow Central London Humanists on uh, Meetup or Instagram and we'll have the details there. Wonderful. So AJ, Audrey, thank you once again for your time. Thank you very much, listeners. And we'll speak to you next week.